Good morning. As we continue our Advent series, looking at uh, the season of Advent, the season of uh, waiting, the season of anticipating, uh, remembering the first coming of Jesus into the world, anticipating the second coming of Jesus into the world. Uh, we're doing that through the lens of the epistles, uh, the letters of the New Testament instead of the Gospels. And uh, the text that we're looking at today is a text that you'll encounter about Wednesday this week if you're using the Advent devotional that uh, we provided for you. And it comes from the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. If you'd uh, locate Philippians chapter 2 in your New Testament, and uh, as you do that, join me in a word of prayer. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together. Thank you for uh, the beauty of this season. Thank you for the joy of family and friends. Thank you for the reminders around us that you have entered into our world, that you are a part of everything that happens. Thank you for the songs that we sing and the prayers that we can pray. Thank you for the joy that we share together. Lord, as we uh, celebrate your coming into this world, Lord, help us to uh, be open to the ways that that reality and that celebrating continue to shape the way that we live. Allow us to be molded and prodded and invited by you today to become more and more a reflection of your image here in this world. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Philippians chapter 2. This is a uh, really amazing text. And we could probably do a 12-week series just on Philippians chapter 2. I say that, I realize, about a number of things that we look at. And one of these uh, days, I'm going to announce that we're doing a 12-week series on Philippians chapter 2 just to show you that it's real. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, verse 1 says, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and sympathetic? Then make me truly happy. Uh, perhaps more literally, complete my joy. Complete my joy, he says. Make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other loving one another, working together with one heart and one purpose. And then verse 3 says, Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't think only of your own affairs, but be interested in others too and what they are doing. Your attitude should be the same uh, as, that, as Christ Jesus had. And though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. Uh, he took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. There's the Advent portion. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. And because of this, God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every other name. 
So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And we'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. So uh, just a quick survey this morning to get started. Uh, how many of you consider yourself to be a good driver? Are you a good driver? Go ahead, vote. Are you a good driver? Are you a good driver? All right, a little bit harder question. You don't have to vote on this one. I don't want to create any problems for anybody. Are you a better driver than your spouse? Don't vote on that. Don't vote on that. Everybody's voting. I warned you. That would be a problem. How about this? Are you a better, are you a better driver than the person in front of you? I don't know. The per- <laughs> Look. <laughs> better driver than me, right? So... According to uh, one survey by uh, uh, AAA uh, about February last year, it turns out about 83% of Americans believe that they are a better driver than average, that they're a safer driver, that they're, that they're more cautious, that they're more uh, capable driver than everybody else. 83% think that they're better than average. Now, right, you understand that. Statistically, that's impossible, right? <laughs> And, fascinatingly, uh, the most inexperienced drivers, 16, 17, 18-year-olds, believe that they're a better driver than everybody else on the road almost 100% of the time, that they are always the superior driver. Right? It's not just better than average, but they're the best drivers. The, most, the least experienced people are the best drivers. And then if you, you know, take these phenomenal drivers and press just a little bit further, the survey said that uh, in addition to being a better driver, more cautious, more safe, more conscientious, uh, over half of them uh, in the last month have texted while driving. And uh, many of them report that they routinely drive 15 to 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. Uh, in, as their, so, so, what, so, so the conclusion was, right, that, that, that the assumption that we're better than everybody else may not be terribly factual. And... The tendency to think of ourselves as better than average, better than others, isn't limited just to our driving. Uh, if you uh, look at different surveys uh, done at different times and in different ways, you'll discover that most people, most people think that they, when they go to work, work harder than everybody else at work. Right? Most, most people think that they work just harder than, they're, they're the better employee. They're a harder worker. Uh, people don't go around saying, you know what, I'm probably the weakest link here. I recognize that. That isn't the way we talk about it. People think that they're the hardest worker. And, and if they think that they're not the hardest worker, there's a good reason for it. Because they're smarter or more skillful or more capable. And they don't need to work as hard as everybody else. So, uh, harder worker. Uh, most people think that they are a better friend than average. Most people think that they're better than average spouse. A few years ago in uh, Scientific America, um, there, uh, a study was reported on this phenomenon in an article that was called The Superiority Illusion, where everyone is above average. And what this article affirmed is that most of us think that we're above average no matter what the metric is that we're measuring. It doesn't matter what we're measuring. Everybody thinks that they're above average. And some of you are sitting here saying, no, I don't think that. I'm really, I don't really think that I'm above average. Ah, ah, but are you really humble? Or is your humility just the thing that you overinflate about yourself, right? See, see how this works? 
See? It's a, it's, a, it's a trap. And what's even more interesting is that the psychologists among us tell us that some measure of this tendency, some uh, measure of this tendency to overinflate uh, our ability, or our capacity to, to judge ourselves to be superior is actually good for us. Why? Why? Because, they say, people who have too clear a view of their actual capabilities, right, uh, are depressed, right? It's, it's, defe- it's defeating. It's depressing, right? There are six billion of us running around. If you really knew that you were average to below average on most things, how, how defeating and depressing and, and, and what a downer that would be. Uh, it's totally discouraging. What the Bible says is there's actually some truth to that. There's some truth to that if you play by the rules of that game. If you think that the choice is between an unwarranted superiority illusion, the comforts of that unwarranted superiority illusion on the one hand, or a sort of a depressive, dark, cold, hard reality, right? If, if, if that's your only choice, uh, then we are either going to end up making everybody else around us miserable, or we are going to be miserable ourselves, or both. And the Bible comes and says, look, that may be true, but there's another way. That may be true, but there's another way. There's another way to think about the problem. There's another solution to the problem. Those aren't your only two choices. And the Bible has an entirely different possibility that it holds up, and it's the possibility of genuine humility. Humility. So why does the Bible have a different solution to the problem? It's because the Bible diagnoses the problem differently. The Bible says, look, why is it that we do things, in verse 3, out of selfish ambition? Right? The, the, the beginning of verse 3 says selfish ambition in the original language. Why do we do things out of selfish ambition? Why do we do things uh, that, that create divisions? Why do we do things that, uh, that have us always fighting with each other in this world? Uh, in our translation, uh, most of our Bibles say uh, the, 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 the root of that problem, the diagnosis is that we are living to make a good impression. And in older translations of the Bible, uh, that, that might say, uh, don't do anything out of vainglory. You, you know that word, vainglory? Does that ring a bell? And behind the, that older word, vainglory, don't do anything out of living to make a good impression, don't do anything out of vainglory, uh, behind that word is a Greek word, the original word that Paul actually has picked when he wrote this. And what he says is, don't do anything out of kenodoxia. Kenodoxia. It's two words pushed together. The first word is from kenosis. And kenosis means to empty, to be empty. Kenosis. And doxa is glory. Doxa is glory. So, kenodoxia is empty of glory. Don't do anything out of the sense of being empty of glory. Now, what does it mean to be empty of glory? What will you do if you're empty of glory? Well, if your stomach is empty of food, we have a, we have a term for that. It's called, I'm hungry. And you, and, you, and you try to feed, right? You find food to consume if you're empty of food, if you're hungry. If my soul is empty of glory... If I have kenodoxia, if I'm empty of glory, I'm hungry for something. My soul is hungry for glory. My soul is hungry for honor. My soul is hungry to be respected. It's hungry to have some assurance that says you matter, you, you're, you're real, you're permanent, you count. My soul is hungry for that. 
There's, a, there's an inner vacuum that needs to be filled. And so we're constantly trying to find ways to fill up what is missing in our empty soul. Now, to get respect, to get important, to, uh, to do those things, uh, the point is not to be rich or beautiful or smart. That doesn't matter. What does matter is to be richer, to be smarter, to be more beautiful than. So C.S. Lewis puts it this way. If everyone else became equally rich, equally clever, or equally good-looking, then there would be nothing to be proud of. (laughs) It's the comparison that makes us proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. So we're empty of glory, and we're constantly trying to fill ourselves with glory. We're constantly trying to consume the things that will fill us up again. And so what does that do? What's the result of that? Well, Paul is really clear here. He says it's division. If, if, if all of us are just sort of trying to consume the things that will fill us up with glory and honor and respect and attention and admiration and appreciation, all the things that we crave, all the things that tell us that we matter, Paul says, you, you will be hopelessly divided. Your, your relationships will be characterized by divisiveness. Uh, it will be, uh, the world will be filled with people who can't work together. Broken relationships, constant disagreement. Uh, uh, Kenodoxia says, I know that I'm right. And I can't admit that I'm wrong. I know that I'm right. And I'll stand here and, and, and pay any price to prove to you that I'm right, even to the bitter end. Kenodoxia is, is, is what the Bible puts at the center of, of all division, all brokenness. Uh, it's, it's at the center of everything from divorce to terrorism. And it's not just out in our culture, but it's in the church too. It, it shows itself in the church because it's not a culture thing, it's not a church thing, it's a human thing. It's in the church, and it's not only in the church, but it's in the Bible. The, almost the whole entire book of Philippians, all, in fact, almost all of the New Testament letters are addressing some version of division, some, some, some fight, some disagreement, some divide that has happened, some kind of brokenness. And so Philippians is written to say, be united, be wholehearted together. You know, Paul doesn't have to write to somebody where unity is in abundance and tell them to be united. He writes to them when it's lacking. So he says, be united. That's what's missing. Anytime we see a lack of unity, anytime we see a lack of cohesion, anytime there is a lack of of, of wholeheartedness, togetherness. There's a lack of humility at the core. So what's the way out of that kind of reality? What's the way out of pride? Uh, what's the way towards this humility? Yeah, if you're listening uh, uh, to what Paul is saying, you might conclude that you know, in order to be humble, what I have to do is think less of myself. Right After all, uh, we all know people who are proud, and the proud people that we know are, are usually arrogant to some degree. Right? They're the overconfident ones. They're, the, they're constantly self-promoting. They're constantly bragging. They're constantly telling us what they do and what they've done and who they know and where they've been. 
But, but, but that's not the only kind of pride. Right? That's not the only version of pride, right? Because ultimately pride, the opposite of humility, is this insecurity. It's this hunger. It's this, this gnawing away, this need to fill my soul with something, this need for glory. And that need can be, that emptiness can be manifested just as much through an inferiority feeling as it can through a superiority feeling. And so if you're always down on yourself, if you're always uh, putting yourself down, if you're always assuming that nobody could ever love you, you're always beating yourself up, you're always pointing out your own flaws, your, your, your worst critic, your own worst enemy, you're afraid of compliments, you don't want any kind of attention. No, no, I just stay in the shadows. I don't want any attention at all. Now that's, that's, just, as, that's just as much something that comes out of this kenodoxia, this, this need for uh, this awareness, this keen awareness of emptiness. For those who are living in inferiority worlds, you're just as absorbed in thinking about yourself as a person who is living in the superiority world. So the opposite of pride is not to think less of yourself. The opposite of pride is is self-consciousness. The opposite of humility, rather, is self-consciousness, right? The opposite of humility is... Listen listen to what Screwtape Letters um, tells us. Screwtape Letters is a a classic little book by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis writes this uh, um, description. It's a collection of um, letters that are written by a devil named Screwtape. And he's writing to give advice to his nephew, who is a, a sort of a junior devil in training. And he's giving advice on how to tempt human beings, uh, he calls them patience. And so Screwtape says uh, uh, to his nephew, he says, I see that your patient has become humble. Uh, have you drawn his attention to that fact yet? Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm humble. And almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility will appear. Abjection and self-hatred, right? This is the inferiority side, uh, may even do us good if they keep the man concerned with himself. And above all, if self-contempt can be made the starting point for contempt of other selves, and thus for gloom and cynicism and cruelty. And then Screwtape goes on to say, uh, let your patient think of humility not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion, of his own talents and character. And so that brings us right back to our text, doesn't it? The, the text is absolutely clear. It's absolutely brilliant. And, and what Paul says is, I want you to have humility. And then he describes it. He says, what does that mean? He says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Right? He doesn't say you should have a low view of yourself. He doesn't say you should hate yourself. He doesn't say you shouldn't have any interests. He doesn't say you shouldn't have any goals. He doesn't say you shouldn't have any needs. He just says, think about yourself a little bit less. Look at yourself a little bit less. Humility 
is about what you're looking at. And, and so that's why Screwtape says that true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not noticing yourself. It's not being aware of your emptiness. It's not being aware of uh, your, your, uh, your fears that others will see your inadequacy. What are others thinking of me? What will others believe about me? It's not being aware of the need to fill your hunger. It's not always being aware of self. So it's not being down on yourself, and it's not being up on yourself. Humility is just simply not thinking about yourself all that much. So what that means is, humility then is never something that I can work on directly. Right? I, I, can't go to, I can't work directly on humility. I can't say to myself, hmm, I wonder if I'm being humble. I'm going to work on myself. I'm going to work on being humble. Because as soon as I say I, have, I want to work on myself to be humble, my attention is back on me, which is the opposite of humble. I can't work on humility directly. It's always indirect. So what are you supposed to do then? How do you get to humility? If, if pride... If vainglory, right, is looking at myself, then the way that humility is to look at somebody else. And I don't know if you can see it in the way that your text is laid out, but in Philippians 2, at verse 5, there's a shift. And uh, biblical scholars have always always wondered uh, where it comes from, but they're all clear that Paul is using a song here. Uh, uh, starting verse 5, uh, we call this the hymn to Christ. It's a hymn. It's an early Christian hymn. It's a poem. It's a song. And he quotes it or writes it. We don't know. He either includes it from another place or he creates it. But this is a song. And this is what happens, right? Uh, uh, he's saying this, this text isn't just theology, but the text is going to work on you. It's not just something to know, but there's something to experience here. Because whenever the church wants to get something into your heart, they put it into a song. Whenever the church wants to get something into your soul, uh, they, they put it to meter. And Paul's saying, what you need to do is get this picture of Jesus into your soul. What, what, what you need to do is let this image, this picture of Jesus, uh, get into your imagination, to get, it, get in, into your heart. Uh, If you want to get out of the emptiness, uh, you have to be filled with something else. And in the way that you fill yourself is put your eyes on Jesus. And so he's saying, get a vision of Jesus. Get it into your bones. Not just an idea in your head. But but find something there that you're going to praise God for. Something that, that captures your passion. And when you want him, when you worship him, when you see him, Humility will be a byproduct of that. So there are two specific things that we see when we sing this song about Jesus. Uh, The first thing is, uh, we can't see it in English, but it's loud and clear in the original Greek. In verse 7, our translation here says, He made himself nothing. 
Uh, other translations there will say he emptied himself. Does that sound familiar? And the Greek word there is kenosis again. Uh, he, he kenosised himself. That, again, that's what Advent is all about. When Jesus came into the world, he was born as a baby, and Paul says in order for that to happen, he emptied himself. Now the question is, what did he empty himself of? And again, this is a great debate that has raged in theology. What did Jesus empty himself of? What did he pour out? And sometimes people will say, well, he poured out his divinity. But it's impossible to think that he poured out his divinity. He never got rid of his divine nature. Otherwise, the cross would have been ineffective. The cross could not have been God himself absorbing the penalty of sin if Christ, before he went to the cross, had emptied himself of his divinity. He never stops being divine. But what he does empty himself of is his glory. He empties himself of his glory. He empties himself of his beauty. He empties himself of everything that would normally evoke uh, a sense of honor. And when he came, he was lonely, and he was poor, and eventually he was beaten, and he was tortured, and then he was killed. And he wasn't just killed in a, in a sort of honorable way, but he was killed in the most dishonorable way possible on a cross as a public spectacle, branded as a criminal. He emptied himself of his glory. We know that he emptied himself of his glory because the hymn goes on and it says that the thing that God gave him back was his glory. God gave back his glory when he exalted him and put him in a place of honor and gave him a name that would be on the lips of all generations. So do you see the reversal here? We're empty of glory and we're constantly trying to fill up on glory. And Jesus, on the other hand, had all of the glory possible. He had real glory, perfect glory. But he emptied himself of his glory so that we could be full. And so, therefore, since we are already full, since Jesus makes us full, we're already filled with all of the glory we will ever need. We have nothing else left to hunger for in Christ. If we get that song into our imagination, if we get that song into our bones and into our heart, then we can do the next thing. We can see the next thing. And the next thing is in verse 6. And, as, and that is that, that real glory, uh, using the glory that we have received. Real glory is not in accumulating things, but it's in giving things. Uh, see, we can't work on our humility directly because that puts the focus back on self, and that's the opposite of humility. But we can come to see that since we're already full, since Christ makes us full, we can follow his attitude that says being like God, right, being maximally glorified, isn't about getting, it's not about grasping, it's not about attaining, it's not about acquiring or accumulating honor or recognition or power, but it's always about giving. That's always the story of the gospel. The way to truly get rich is to give it away. The way to rule is to serve. The, the way to become infinitely happy is to seek not your own happiness, but to seek the happiness of others. The most glorious thing of all, the greatest glory of all, the best form of glory, is to give away your glory for somebody else. 
That's the path to humility. I get a picture of Jesus. I I get a song of Jesus uh, in my imagination, planted deep in my soul. And as I'm looking at Jesus, I'm looking at myself less and less. I'm not worried about if I'm too high or too low, if I'm too good or too bad. I'm just not concerned about self at all. And as I'm looking at Jesus, as I'm singing his song, as I'm getting his poetry into my spirit, I'm learning that he has filled me with everything that I need, all of the glory, all of the honor that I could ever require. And to maximize that sense of glory, to follow Jesus, I give it away. I pour it out for others. So what does that look like? How do we do that? I have a short video that I want us to end with today. Uh, Each week uh, of Advent, we have spent some time uh, asking one of our members to uh, share their own learning uh, about the topic, the theme that we're working on during the week. And uh, this week, uh, this was a difficult one because... Right? You can't walk up to somebody and say, hey, would you tell us how you became humble? Uh, because you ruin them for life, right? Uh, somebody would have to be able to say, oh, yeah, let me tell you how I became humble. I'm very, very humble. And then it's gone forever. So, um, so instead, uh, we asked somebody to tell a story of um, how they saw the power of this self-emptying, the power of humility uh, being used in the world. So enjoy. My name is Cheryl Roston, and today we are on the third Sunday of Advent, and we turn our attention to humility. And I have given a lot of thought to this this past week, and I realize that this is something that we are bombarded with, the opposite of humility, uh, being a braggart, uh, being full of yourself. There's just so many times when we see this, whether it's in politics or professional sports, it surrounds us. So when we are blessed to meet somebody who really uh, embodies humility, it, it really touches us, and we pay attention because it's rare. And I would like to introduce you to two people in my life who have been models for me, and I think God puts people who model these virtues uh, so that we can learn from them and realize how beautiful it is. And the first fellow is uh, Mauricio, and Mauricio is of Spanish descent. He, so his first language is Spanish. He's a city boy. He grew up in uh, culturally acceptable religious practice in Guatemala, but it didn't touch him personally at all. And then he met Jesus Christ. And he works for minimal pay. He's away from his family during the week, and he helps stove teams from the United States and increasingly Guatemalans also who go up into the mountains and work with the indigenous people. Now, just the fact that he's of Spanish descent and chooses to work with this part of the population in his country is admirable all by itself. Mauricio is a gentle man. And I have seen him install stoves, and my picture that I will have in my mind of Mauricio always is that he at the end of 
the installation. He will gather with us around the stove to bless this household and this new thing they are so excited about. But he is the one that's done all the legwork the week before. He's the one who gets the cement box to each house. He arranges the path so the people who are installing it and assembling it can easily go from place to place to place. It's a lot of work. But you never hear him talk about that. I just picture him standing around the stove as we pray and tears coming down his cheeks. You know, for people he doesn't know and really aren't his social group within the country. And a second person would be Rosa. And Rosa, until recently, was the principal of the school where I volunteer. And Rosa is indigenous, so she comes of Mayan descent. Her first language is Ishil, it's not Spanish. Uh, She grew up, uh, her very young years were during the long, almost two-decade civil war, actually, 36 years. So it was a big portion of her young life when when it was just very difficult to get an education, for example. And through a a Wycliffe missionary, who usually are not in the education business, they're working with translation, but through the influence of a Wycliffe missionary, she got an education, and she became just devoted as a single woman all the rest of her life and continuing on now to providing an education for her own Ishiel people. And her devotion to that is just amazing. And I asked her one day how she became a Christian, and she said that she uh, started attending an evangelical church, which grew considerably during the Civil War, and hanging out with different young women who were were like-minded. And her father assumed that she had become a fanatic. And he was forbidding her to go to church, to meet with these girls. And she told me, and this I had known her for years before she told me this, that she prayed to the Lord that he would send her a disease and then heal her to prove to her father how powerful her God was. And he did. And I was just stunned when I heard this because she said it so modestly. But her whole life has been an example of humility. Not needing to brag, not needing to blow her own horn in any way. To me, the impressive part about a person who shows true humility is that there is a deep confidence and security that they have. A person who is insecure needs to tell you about the accomplishments. But the person who has that genuine humility and a trust in the Lord knows that the Lord knows their record already. They don't have to explain it to anyone. And that is a strength that is amazing. In just a moment, I'm going to invite our ushers to receive our morning offering. And if you did take some time to fill out that welcome card, you can place it in the offering plate as it is passed. Can you come get this for me, please? Thank you. Um, And then the kids have a song that they've been preparing for us that they are going to come share. So take it away. (laughs) 